We shouldn't talk about this may contain graphic descriptions and or explicit content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everybody. I'm Key. And I'm V. And this is We Shouldn't Talk About This. Hello to you, Key. Hello to you, V. We've been on a a little uh, sabbatical. A hiatus of sorts. Yes, we have. We want to keep our fans waiting, have them really just hungry for more true crime things. We waiting with bated breath. Do you think it worked? I hope so. I hope so too. I hope that the the people are are ready for this story today because this is our thirtieth episode, Dirty Thirty. Oh man, or how this in Roman numerals XXX. Oh, spicy. So, with that being said, thank you for to all of our listeners for being patient. And I hope you guys enjoy number 30. All right, Key, would you like to start this one off? Sure. I have a wild, wild crime for wild, you Wild, wild west? Not the wild, wild west, but the crime is wild. So, gather around, children. It's time for a tale of crime. Now, Alfred Rouse was born in Herne Hill, London on April 6, 1894. He was one of three children born to an English father and an Irish mother. His father, Walter, was a hosier, which, you know, is like the people who make pantyhose. And his mother was reportedly an actress who deserted her husband and children in 1900. Yikes. Right. She was like, I'm destined for fame and fortune, and you all are holding me back. (laughs) (laughs) That's harsh. So, Rouse was known as a well-behaved child. He and his siblings attended a local council school where he was regarded as a bright and athletic student. Upon leaving school at age 14, Rouse worked briefly as an office boy for an estate agent. Then he found more secure employment at a textile manufacturing firm. He worked there for a while, then just four days after the outbreak of World War I in 1914, Rouse enlisted in the British Army. And he was assigned to the 24th Queen's Regiment as a private. Private isn't the first rank, isn't it? Yes, it is hmm. the absolute lowest rank. Hmm. So... While training in England before his departure for France, Rouse married his uh, fiance. Rouse was stationed in Paris on March 15, 1915, and there he was there for three months before his unit was sent into battle at the Battle of Festibert in Artois, which began on May 15th. On the last day of the Battle of Festiberts, and just 10 weeks after his arrival in France, 
Ralph sustained wounds to his head, knee, and thigh from a high-explosive shell that exploded close to his head, sending numerous fragments of shrapnel into his leg and head, rendering him unconscious. Dang, that sounds painful. Yeah, now as a result of these injuries, Rouse remained hospitalized for almost a year. And he uh, had to undergo several operations upon both his left temporal region of his head, for anyone who doesn't know what temporal means, and his leg. Rouse's leg leg injuries left him unable to bend his knee and severely affected his ability to walk. Rouse was sent to recuperate at military hospitals. He he actually went to two different military hospitals and was formally discharged from the army on February 11th, 1916 and was awarded a military pension of 20 shillings per week. And from what I could tell, that's about two dollars and 63 cent in u.s dollars today a week yeah bro so not a lot for all these injuries now eventually it did get like bumped up a little but then it went back down so following his recuperation rouse returned to live with his wife in stoke newington Contemporary medical records revealed that at this stage in his life, he was severely disabled. But on July 30th, 1919, so three years after he was discharged, a doctor examining Rouse observed that while he would not allow his knee to be flexed by more than 30%, he suffered no long-term disability from the head wound that he suffered in battle. The doctor could find no physical reason for Rouse's limited knee movement. And as such, this was ascribed to neuroses and his pension was decreased by 12 shillings. Now it had went up to 27 because he was like, I don't want to say he was faking it, but Mm -hmm. by the time he got to this doctor, this doctor was like, okay, there's no reason your leg can't bend any more than this. (sighs) So they they bumped down his shillings from twenty seven to twelve per week. Maybe he wanted people to be sorry for him. Maybe, but that's you know, it's not the way to go about it, Rouse. So beginning in nineteen twenty, he undertook a number of jobs which required a degree of physical exertion. Many of these jobs involved the use of vehicles, resulting in Rouse becoming a moderately skilled mechanic. So I guess by 1920, he was like, okay, the jig is up. I got to go get a job (laughs) and work like, you know, I'm not injured. Now, the same year, he also began to have extramarital affairs in which he seduced any woman or girl he found attractive. The first known girl was a 14-year-old from Edinburgh whom he impregnated when she was 15. Then he abandoned her leaving the girl to give birth in a home for unwed mothers. Dude, what? He is really a piece of toilet paper stuck to your shoe. That's crazy. Four years later, in 1925, Ralph's began an affair with a Hendon-based domestic servant named Nellie Tucker. 
1928, Tucker gave birth to a baby girl and obtained child support order against Rouse, so she wasn't playing. In June 1929, Rouse found employment as a commercial traveler for a Leicester-based firm, which primarily sold braces and garters, typically at locations around the South Coast and the Midlands. This employment earned Rouse four pounds a week with expenses paid each Friday and a sales commission paid every month. Through this employment, Rouse managed to earn sufficient money for him and his wife to obtain a mortgage on a house on Buxton Road in London Borough of Farron Fryan. Fryan. I don't know. You know, these British words are weird. So we'll say Fryan Barnett. That is important later on in the story. Furthermore, in the summer of 1930, he also purchased a 1928 Morris Manor. Have you ever seen a Morris Manor? Yes. It's a yes. Uh, Yes, I've seen that at a car show before. Yes. So he purchased a 1928 Morris Manor. Sick. Yeah. So because of Rouse's high sex drive and... Also, his um, general promiscuity, plus the fact that his job required him to travel extensively across the country. Throughout 1929 and 1930, he conducted a number of affairs with women he typically encountered through his employment. By the summer of 1930, Rouse already had one child support order that was imposed on him by Tucker. And she was pregnant with their second child and fully expecting him to marry her. A young Welsh woman named Phyllis Jenkins was also pregnant and fully expecting marriage in the near future. In addition, Rouse faced several other impending child support order cases from women across the country and one in Paris from his military days. Boy, he was going in. Yeah, he was slinging that thing all over Europe. So, the moral of the story is wrap it up, kids. Now, all the consequences of his years of irresponsibility were bearing down on him. Rouse decided to fake his own death. I mean, because what else would you do? Actually be responsible and pay child support for all these women you're getting pregnant? Oh, no. Pish posh. Oh, no. According to Rouse, he simply wanted to start life afresh (laughs) and yet to ensure the financial stability of his legal wife and his 16-year-old son with her, he had drawn a life insurance policy in his name for £1,000, which was worth about $65,794.41 pounds not u.s dollars today but if you think he was only earning like four pounds a week so a thousand pounds was a lot yeah that's a long time that's a couple years yeah so he did that months before he executed his plan to be paid in the event of an accidental death of the owner driver of his vehicle Around November 2nd or 3rd, 
he had sought out a man of roughly the same build as himself with whom he casually become acquainted with at a pub named Swan and Pyramid. Rouse claimed that the man had previously told him the quote-unquote usual hard luck story and informed him, Governor, I've got nobody in the world who cares whether I live or die. In response, Rouse informed him that through his employment as a commercial traveler, he would be able to secure him a job in the Midlands and he would be traveling to this location on November 5th. At approximately 1.50 in the morning on November 6, 1930, two men returning from Guy Fawkes Night Dance in the town of Northampton to their homes in the nearby village of Hardingstone saw a fire in the distance. Now, with Guy Fawkes Night had just passed, Guy Fawkes Night is November 5th, so the men assumed what they saw in the distance was a bonfire. Now, V, I know that this question is burning in your brain. What is Guy Fawkes Night? Well, I know who Guy Fawkes is. I have a ring with his resemblance on it. Really? Well, okay. Well, it's Guy Fawkes, F-A-W-K-E-S? Guy Fawkes. The one, the one that they modeled the anonymous mask of? Okay, I don't know for sure, mm. but I could give you a little background. So this might be right because Guy Fawkes is a member or was a member of the gunpowder plot. He was arrested while guarding explosives that the plotters had placed underneath the House of Lords, celebrating the fact that King James I had survived the attempt on his life. People lit bonfires around London. And that kind of like became a national holiday of sorts. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So every night on the 5th of November, they light big bonfires. Remember, remember the 5th of November. Yes. So initially the men were not suspicious of this fire roaring because, you know, it was just early, early on the 6th. So they just chalked it up to the Guy Fawkes celebrations. Now, as the two men walked down Hardingstone Lane toward the fire, which was in the direction of their homes, a neatly dressed man carried an attache case passed in the opposite direction. When one of the young men remarked as to the blaze he could see in the distance, Rouse nodded and exclaimed, it looks like someone's having a bonfire up there. Now, the two men approached the fire only to discover that the source of the flames was actually a Morris Minor ablaze in a verge at the side of the country lane, with flames reaching up to 12 feet in height. They summoned the Hardingstone Village Constable, which is was Bert Copping at that time, and the Parish Constable to the scene, and the four men extinguished the fire with water from a nearby pond. Can you imagine how much work that must have been? That has been a lot. Like, I'm kind of tired of just hearing that. Right, just like running with buckets. Mm-mm. That's so, like, uh, unef- un- unefficient, inefficient. Right. 
Now, once the fire was out, they discovered a charred corpse laying across the front seats with its head on the driver's seat and the right arm burnt off at the elbow. There was also a wooden mallet found near the car with three human hairs attached to it. Although the fire had pretty much destroyed the vehicle, the number plate at the rear of the car was largely undamaged in the fire and police were able to determine that it was registered to an Alfred Arthur Ross of Friarant, Friarant, y'all know where I'm trying to say, the place where he has his house. You get participation in word, the key. Now, a forensic examination of the car revealed a joint on the feeding pipe between the gas tank and the carburetor had been loosened before the fire had ignited, thus allowing the gas to freely stream both into and beneath the car. Also, a spectroscopic test conducted upon the victim's blood and a microscopic examination of his air passages revealed the victim had been alive but unconscious when the fire started. Police visited Rouse's Baron Barnett home to interview his wife. Mrs. Rouse was able to confirm her husband had left home at approximately 8.30 p.m. on November 5th to attend a business meeting in Leicester and that he had arrived home at a time which she believed was approximately 2 a.m., but she was incorrect about that. Now, she said he, you know, he arrived around what she thought was 2 a.m. and said nothing. She was then asked to accompany the police to Northampton to assist in the identification of the victim. Due to the actual condition of the remains, she was not allowed to see the body, but instead was asked to confirm whether she could identify scraps of clothing and a wallet containing 30 shillings, which had been found upon the victim. Mrs. Rouse stated the items of clothing looked like those her husband had worn, but she could not be certain. The wallet, however, had definitely belonged to her husband. Now, in this meantime, this is what was happening. Rouse had hitched a ride to London, arriving at his Farron Burnett home at approximately 6.20 a.m. He was there for just 30 minutes before traveling by train to Glamorganshire to meet with Phyllis Jenkins, who was his mistress that already had one baby and was pregnant again. When Jenkins asked Rouse where his car was, he replied it had been stolen in Northamptonshire the previous day, and that was why it had taken him 18 hours to reach her. He assured Jenkins that he had reported the theft to both the police and his insurance company. The next morning, Jenkins showed him a newspaper with an image of his burnt-out car, which speculated as to whether the deceased occupant had been the owner of the vehicle and questioning where whether he had been murdered. But Rouse denied that the car was his and then left to travel to Hammersmith Broadway. At 10 a.m., he boarded a coach at Cardiff, and once the coach had departed, 
you know what Jenkins did? A ring a ding ding police. (laughs) 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 She called the local police and said that Rouse had been in her house and his intended destination was Hammersmith Broadway. She completely ratted him out. Yeah, she snitched real good. They, in turn, informed the Metropolitan Police Service of his whereabouts. That evening, Rouse was arrested at the Hammersmith Coach Terminal by Detective Sergeant Skelly of the Metropolitan Police. I could just see her, like, waving, like he's leaning out the window, and the coach is going, and she's waving. Then as soon as it's like out of eyesight, she runs to a phone. <laughs> yeah, just clicks it clicks in her heels, shuffles. Oh man. To the nearest doctor, uh, Doctor Who booth. Right, it's like, police. No, wait. I got something to tell you. That burnt out car. I'm gonna tell you where he's at. Where he's <laughs> headed right now. <laughs> now at the Northampton police station, Ralph said that he had encountered the victim hitchhiking along the Great North Road toward the Midlands and offered the man a lift. He had gotten lost and stopped to answer, you know, the call of nature and asked his traveling companion, whom he'd given a cigar, conveniently, to fill the car's gas tank from a can that was in the trunk. According to Rouse, when he looked back, the vehicle was ablaze and the man was trapped inside. Jeez. He had, he claimed, attempted to open the door of the vehicle, but had been beaten back by the flames. And in a state of panic, he fled from the scene. So that was his story. You know what? I believe it. I believe that happened. It sounds totally believable. Yeah. Now, upon being confronted with the forensic evidence that the feeding pipe had been loosened, Rouse remained adamant that the fire had been accidental, offering conjecture that it had been started by the inebriated victim lighting the cigar after he accidentally spilled some of the contents of the gas tank inside his vehicle. Now, on November 27th, Rouse was formally charged with the murder of an unknown man. He was remanded into custody until December 3rd. On this date, a formal trial date of January 26th was set. Throughout his trial, Rouse stuck to his claim that the death of the unknown man had been accidental. To support this, Chief Defense Counsel Donald Fenimore introduced an engineer who testified that in many instances, excessive heat in a burning car would invariably result in the loosening of the joint on the feeding pipe, and as such, Rouse's contention that the victim had inadvertently set the vehicle ablaze could be true. Now, this claim was refuted by Sir Bernard Spilsbury and Dr. Eric Shaw, who had together performed an autopsy upon the unidentified victim and who were each called to testify on behalf of the prosecution. Both men testified that the victim had been alive and unconscious when the fire had been started and that the mallet found near the Morris Minor had likely been the weapon used to club the victim on the head uh, prior to the start of the fire. Spilsbury further testified that 
one of the few fragments of clothing found on the victim was a section of the fork of the pants, which is where the legs meet the crotch. And it was found to be soaked in gas, thus corroborating the prosecution's contention that Rouse had extensively doused both his victim and vehicle in gas before setting the vehicle ablaze. This forensic claim would be challenged by the defense, who alleged that the gas stain supported Rouse's claim that the victim may have spilled gas over himself while in a drunken stupor trying to put gas in the car and smoke a cigar at the same time. Now, Rouse himself did testify in his own defense at the trial. Despite some nervousness, he often displayed an air of confidence as he reiterated his claims of the death of the unknown victim had been accidental. However, he performed poorly in the witness box, repeatedly being forced to either admit two contradictions in the earlier statements he had provided the police and his current claims, or that he had lied about his actions or movements. He could not, for instance, explain why he had lied to his mistress about his car being stolen in Northamptonshire and that he had reported the theft to the police, or why his mistress had earlier testified that when he arrived at her house on November 6th, he had smelled of gas and his eyebrows appeared to be slightly scorched. Dang his eyebrows. Slid it. <laughs> she just snitched it. Everything. Everything. He must have really made her mad. Oh yeah. His eyebrows probably wasn't even scorched. She probably just added that in. Yeah. Now the trial lasted six days. The jury debated for just 25 minutes before reaching their verdict, and Rouse was unanimously found guilty of murder and sentenced to death on January 31st. Rouse firmly declared his innocence and did lodge an appeal against his conviction, primarily contending immoral character evidence had been submitted at his trial and had influenced the jury. His appeal was heard on February 23rd, 1931 but was unsuccessful. On Tuesday, March 10th, 1931, Rouse was hanged in Bedford Goal. In the days prior to his execution, his wife and two of his mistresses visited to bid him farewell. Oh, that's so nice of him. Now, they were not playing around. He His appeal was denied on the 23rd of February, and March 10th, he was gone. Oh, wow. Right. Like, it's not like dragging it out for years and years and appeals and appeals. No, they were like, okay, let's get this done. We're wasting daylight. Let's go. Now, Rouse never formally admitted to admitted his guilt to the murder of the victim to the police. Although shortly before his execution, he wrote a letter to the Daily Sketch in which he confessed his guilt. In his confession, which was published after his execution, Rouse again stated that he had never asked for the victim's name, claiming there was no reason why I should do so. The body of Rouse's victim was interred in a grave marked with a simple cross bearing the inscription in memory of an unknown man in the grounds of St. Edmund's Church in Hardingstone, Northamptonshire. 
A metal box containing several newspaper accounts of Rouse's trial was buried with the victim. 2012, May, the family of a 23-year-old man named William Briggs, who had been missing since 1930, contacted Northamptonshire police in hopes that advances in DNA profiling may provide a positive identification. The family was directed to a team of forensic scientists from the University of Leicester and Northumbria University who obtained archived tissue samples of the murdered man for comparison, but the mitochondrial DNA samples did not prove to be a match. To date, DNA testing has revealed nine to 12 families whose relatives disappeared around 1930 are not related to the victim of what's been dubbed the blazing car murder. But nonetheless, inquiries to establish the victim's identity are still ongoing. So there have been like 12 families who have submitted DNA in hopes of identifying this man. Dang, that's insane. Yeah. It was wild. I can believe this guy. Right. Uh-huh. You go out here impregnating 50,000 women, and then you're like, okay, I'll just pretend to kill myself and it'll all go away. Uh-huh. But it backfired and you got killed for real. Yeah. <laughs> well, hope that's a valuable lesson for our listeners out there. Any fathers to be or any fathers that aren't doing the right thing mm-mm, don't do it because whatever you say may end up actually happening to you right he put that out in the universe and boom swooped back and got him comes right back at you like soars down snatches you up well key i was really expecting you to do a case in the u.s because you know it is during the the dust bowl and everything during one of our Largest economic crashes in our country's history. You mean when Coca-Cola had actual cocaine in it? Oh, yeah, when it was the good stuff. Right. Let's start a petition on change.org to bring that back. Um, we, we won't be careful how we word it, though. Make sure we use the scientific names for the, the additives, not the street names for them. We'll do. We'll do. I'm sure your your FBA your FBI agents having a field day hearing you say you want you want cocaine like you know on record like that. So I'm just saying if that's the way it was originally made, we should at least be able to go back to the original, you know, recipe. Hashtag go back to our roots. Yes, let's let's remove the high fructose corn syrup, put the sugar back in, and put the cocaine back in. <laughs> I oh think that goodness. would be awesome. <laughs> well, you heard it here. You heard it here first, people. I mean, I wouldn't partake because, again, I am a up-and-coming FBI agent. So I would not be partaking. But, you know, I think it would just make life simpler. Well, did you know there was a bottling uh, Coca-Cola bottling company in New Jersey? I did not. Well, let me tell you something that's also in New Jersey. Two gentlemen, Herman and Paul Petrio, 
Now, these two gentlemen were cousins. They came over from off the boat and landed in New Jersey and, you know, started their lives anew as immigrants to our country. Herman had a more criminal background in the beginning. Money was immediately his ambition. His, this greed just fueled his high-dollar lifestyle. He was, he was involved in insurance frauds, um, currency counterfeiting, any, any, kind of, any kind of like, you know, elaborate ways to get money, not just, not just stick up jobs, you know? He wanted to go around the other way, do tax evasions and things like that. So not go out and get a job, not do something simple to obtain money illegally, but do it the hard way. Yeah, do it the hard way. Paul, on the other end, was a clean-cut family man. He was trained as a tailor and opened up a shop in Philadelphia. He grew confidence with his customers and had loyal clientele. But when the Great Depression struck, his business fell incredibly hard. So Paul had to look for other ways to make money to sustain the lifestyle he established for his family because they were, you know, pretty well off because he had his own business and everything. Right, right. He, he has lunch with his cousin Herman one day, and Herman pitches to Paul the opportunity to bring in a great deal of money through witchcraft and alchemy. What? I would I would have just got up and paid my bill and left. <laughs> <laughs> he said, good day, sir. I said, good day. In the back room of Paul's tailor shop, women would come in drawn in by classified ads referring to love potions in the newspapers. These women were unhappy with their husbands and knew that this love po- this love potion would do the trick because it was made with arsenic. <clears throat> Excuse me? <laughs> Sounds the- more like a death potion than a love potion. It gets it gets um it, it gets deeper. The the cousins convinced the women to take out life insurance policies on their husbands. And behind the scenes, Paul and Herman were working with corrupt insurance agents who altered the documents to make Patrios the beneficiaries. Somehow, somehow these love potion schemes kept going on, killing countless husbands, gaining lots of money, expanding past Pennsylvania into New York, New Jersey, and Delaware. The cousins had a huge network of dirty associates. They had doctors, insurance agents, undertakers, all corrupt, receiving cuts for their involvement and silence. So, like, every step of the scheme, they had somebody. (laughs) They had someone, yeah. Everyone was in their pocket. That's right. But one day, they came across a woman, Stella Alfonsi. She actually wanted her husband dead. But for this murder, the cousins altered insurance documents to make it so that accidental deaths were paid out double. So with this greedy mindset, Herman went off the re- he went off the main course. So he's not gonna, we're not gonna use a potion of arsenic. He called a hitman to do the job. What? This hitman was a secret service agent. 
Oh my gosh. Right. They had they had like this perfect scheme going on. Like like these men are accidentally dying and like life insurance is just like it's going like these policies are just getting paid out left and right, left and right. But Herman's like, you know what? Let's make it double for accidental death and I'ma call the head out for it. Come on, dude. This what happens when you get greedy. You get you get sloppy. You try Very to hire sloppy. someone else. He could have just did his normal scheme, and they probably would have done this until they died. You want to hear the funny thing, though? What's that? Herman got impatient and just poisoned Mr. Alfonsi himself. Well, the gosh. So he put out a hit on him through he, the, he, accidentally through the CIA. Yeah. So, of course, it didn't get done, so he just went and poisoned the man. Right. And, wow. so, and, so, and, so, and so even though... Even though the agent never received payment because, you know, he didn't commit the job, so or say he committed the job and got payment so that he can arrest them, he knew that he knew exactly who the target was. He knew the he knew the target was Mr. Alfonsi. So when Mr. Alfonsi dies, the agents were able to arrest Herman and Stella. And then as they led investigation, Paul was drug in. And dozens of corrupt members of society were drugged in also. Dang. Prosecutors attributed only 20 deaths to the cousins and the rest of their group. But through investigation, the number was to believe over 100 deaths were caused by them. Damn, that was killing people left and right. Yeah, yeah, they had like a three, like a a tri-state, yeah, no, it was four states. They had like four states. Just in his ring. That's so. Right. The cousins were caught. Everyone involved was caught. So the cousins were executed by electric chair in 1941. Miss Alfonsi was released. She didn't um, have any major charges pressed against her. And on this, um, oh man, on this. I think I think it shows called Wicked Killers, where I watched some of my material from. Um, the cousins were ranked level fourteen on Doctor Stone's scale of evil, and level fourteen is the ruthlessly self-centered schemers. How far does this scale go? To twenty-one. Oh. Wow. Okay, so they're up there. Yeah. <laughs> But um yeah that's my story um it's very short because there were, there's there's not like there there isn't much other than Stella being a specific part of them their of their downfall and everyone else that they gave the love potions to were just you know in the crossfires and it's really upsetting too because like all of these women their husbands were poisoned from right like you know right in front of their eyes and then all the money goes to these guys or most of the money goes to these guys like like no right because it sounds like the most of the women didn't want them to be poisoned they yeah. wanted them to fall back in love yeah but, mm, what slime balls oh yeah absolutely absolutely well that Oh, if they had just not been greedy. Herman, it was all Herman's fault. Paul was Paul was smart. He wanted he wanted to stick to what they knew 
what was working for him. But Herman was was impatient, greedy, calling people, calling random people they don't know, getting the CIA involved. Crazy. Well, that's what he gets. So, even though that was not too terrible of a story, we're still going to bring this up, right? Right. So, do you have something? Um, uh, I have a big thanks to our, we should talk about this, listeners, for Gravity. staying with us. And, and, you know, uh, working through the motions with us as we took a two-week break unintentionally. And it's still COVID-19 season, so hopefully everyone is still safe and everything. Yes, hopefully everyone is safe. And good luck to all the parents whose children are going back to school and the virtual learning it's very different so my well wishes to you all and like I wish you could have been here in my house for dinner because these carrot dogs I made were the bomb carrot dogs yeah it's like like carrots but you season them to like tastes kind of like smoky and salty like a hot dog then you put it on a bun and you put all the fixings on it like a hot dog boom bingo bingo there you go really good that sounds that sounds interesting it sounds like it's worth a try it's good if you if you can get it seasoned correctly they're very good Hmm. How, how long take you to master that recipe uh not long, because I use, uh, like, my Instant Pot to, like, pressure cook them. So it's, like, it gets the seasoning, like, really good into them. Like, I've tried it maybe, like, four times, four or five times. Hey, it looks like, looks like you're catching on to something. Yes, they are very good. And it was a spectacular dinner today. Hand-cut French fries, carrot dogs. My dinner wasn't too shabby either. I I uh, cut up some jalapenos and de-seeded them and made some really scrumptious chicken nachos. Mm. It was real good. That sounds good. Yeah, it makes Did me you... want to make it like all the time by myself. Did you put some spicy ranch on those? I did. I put some spicy ranch that you got me from Aldi. Yes, yes. I always have my head on a swivel when I go into Aldi to to look for that spicy ranch for you. Yeah, that is the Tuscan brand. There's yeah. Tuscan something. Tuscan Gardens, I think. Tuscan Gardens. Very good stuff there. Yeah. Real quick, um... I would like to give a shout out to Alyssa for getting me this incredible encyclopedia of serial killers book. Wow, Alyssa, thanks. Yeah, it is an A to Z guide to history's most heinous murders. Hmm. Now that sounds like something I'd read. 
Yeah, absolutely. This is going to help me with some of our more straightforward cases. Maybe maybe one of our solo cases. This would help maybe. me with for sure. Because we do have some solo cases coming down the pike when either V or myself is not available, then we'll just do a solo episode just so we don't have to not give an episode to our valued listeners. Right, right, right. Because this two-week hiatus was caused by me again. Every time we have a break, it's my fault. That's fine. Yeah, it, it was for a good cause this time, though, so I had to go find the perfect carrots to make my carrot dogs so i was driving around the country for two weeks (laughs) trying to find my carrots sounds like sounds like a simple life mission accomplished no but with that being said we will see you guys next week hit us up on our facebook page in the Facebook group, we shouldn't talk about this podcast. Instagram, Twitter, WSTAT underscore pod, which is W-S-T-A-T underscore pod. And also, if you have any suggestions, questions, comments, cases you want to hear, we shouldn't talk about this at gmail.com. Yes, that is our American email our American email. And though we don't put out episodes, we're still active on the interwebs. So, you know, we can always be seen posting something on our Twitter, Instagram, Facebook group, even if we do happen to have to take a week off. So don't miss out on the fun. Don't miss out. Well, I guess that brings Dirty 30 to a close. That's it. Thank you so much for listening to our episode 30. I'm Key. And I'm V. And this has been We Shouldn't Talk About This. Let's catch you later. Bye.